If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This time, a former Suns player who you might remember as T-Rex. More video in just a moment, but this is Rex Chapman's mugshot, and we are learning a lot more about the charges. Okay, so when did it switch for you from pills to heroin? I ended up snorting it, and I said I'll never shoot it, and within a week, I had a needle in my eye. A brawl? You don't know what a brawl is. You ever been stabbed? You ever been hit over the head with a baseball bat? I don't think so. I grew up in that culture, too. You know, you work hard, play hard. Work hard, you deserve a pole one. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I don't fucking like you. Welcome to Charges. I'm your host, Rex Chapman. Today, we are proud to hit the ice for the very first time. A hockey player's makeup, especially in the NHL on and off the rink, requires a toughness seldom seen in other professional sports. On the ice, you can actually throw down your gloves and throw fist mano a mano. Yes, there was even a time in the NHL when this was celebrated and encouraged. Our guest today is Chris Knuckles Nyland, a 15-year veteran and a Stanley Cup champion with the Montreal Canadiens. Chris and I share the experience of battling addiction, specifically opioids. And again, we want to remind any of our listeners, if you're struggling with addiction or know someone who is, There is help out there, and you can and will beat this struggle. 
I'd like to welcome the pride of West Roxbury, Massachusetts, Chris Knuckles Nyland. Chris, thanks for coming on, buddy. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rex. Uh, quite the introduction. We do have something in common, obviously the opioids, and um, I'm glad that I have that part of my life in order right now. So life is good. You and me both, bud. You and me both. Uh, and I got to be 100% up front. I know very little about hockey. I enjoy watching it. My first experience with hockey, really, you know, growing up in Kentucky, we didn't have it. You know, I remember seeing it on ESPN and thinking it was a brand new sport. <laughs> and I was like 12 years old. But my first experience with it, I was playing for the Phoenix Suns. And we had a young rookie on the team. And I was walking into practice one day, young rookie named Steve Nash. And he was out on the ice in his basketball uniform, flying up and down the ice with the Coyotes. And I was just amazed. <laughs> I thought, oh my, well, first of all, you guys are so fast. I mean, it's one thing to be able to skate, but to be able to do it like that, I can't imagine playing basketball on skates. It's just beyond me. So kudos for all the work it took to get to that level, man. Well, I got to tell you, when you think of hockey, you think it's Canadiana, right? And uh, when you look at hockey in the States, you know, it's a regional sport, the Northeast, you know, New England, you look at Minnesota, the state of Minnesota, big hockey town, the Midwest somewhat. And now with the expansion of the NHL, uh, when Gretzky got traded from Edmonton, went to L.A., uh, more so in California, we're seeing guys getting drafted, kids out of California. I mean, Austin Matthews with the Toronto Maple Leafs from Phoenix, Arizona. The league has expanded somewhat, and, um, you know, the grassroots level, it's gotten a lot better in the States, but boy, you need money to play that sport. It's not like grabbing a pair of sneakers and a pair of shorts, go play some hoop down the schoolyard. Tell me about growing up in West Roxbury, Mass, and how hockey and that type of neighborhood all come together. Well, West Roxbury uh, is a neighborhood, a borough in the city of Boston predominantly Irish neighborhood. And growing up back in the 60s there, um, Bobby Orr uh, came to the Boston Bruins, and, man, that city just went nuts for him. He took the city by storm, and everybody loved him. Every kid wanted to be like him. And uh, he had such an impact on the area that the city of Boston, the mayor at a time when he came, was looking at ways to keep kids off the street, keep them from the street corner, hanging around, doing nothing. And yeah, there were a lot of basketball courts around the city and all the parks, but there were no hockey rinks. It was one, really, couple rinks, Boston Skating Club in the Brighton section, but there weren't a lot of rinks. So the governor, along with the mayor, got together and they started building these rinks. They were called MDC rinks, Metropolitan District Commission. And they built a lot of these rinks in different neighborhoods, South Boston, West Roxbury, Charlestown, Dorchester, all the inner city. And it gave kids an opportunity to get off the street corner. It gave families an opportunity to do public skating, going around and just skating to music. And then they started coming up with little leagues, um, like Little League Baseball, like uh, they started um, Boston Neighborhood Hockey League, which was a big thing for me. But, you know, that's what we did. 
they had back in those days. They had those leagues just to keep kids off the street and uh, give them, um, you know, something to do and sports to play. So it was awesome. It was a, it's had a big impact on my, my young hockey life, my young life in general. That's so beautiful. Uh, you know, in my research, what came up again and again was that you were never really expected to go pro. You played college hockey at Northeastern, a uh, great hockey school, but still the NHL wasn't necessarily on the radar, right? No, it wasn't. I played for um, a coach who happened to be a judge. His name was Paul King. And Judge King was in charge of one of the busiest courts with the most violent offenders in the state of Massachusetts. And he was arthritic. He was hunched over. And his brother was the governor of the state, Ed King, at a time. And the judge saw something in me that nobody else did. I don't know what to this day, because he's passed on now. But he always had this faith in me, always had something for me. He used to take me out for pizza a lot. He had eight kids of his own, eight. And he had one son that was Down syndrome, and he'd sit in the bench all day. You know, he'd get up in the morning, go to that chiropractor, go sit on the bench all day, come down, get on the ice for hockey practice, all hunched over in a cold hockey rink. Then he'd go home, do the family thing. But this guy was a huge, huge influence on my life. And he really helped me, you know, get to the next level. And I say that I, I, he helped me get into prep school. I played Catholic Memorial. I played high school hockey. I was a young senior. I didn't do the, that great in school. But um, the option came up to go to prep school for a year up in Lake Placid, New York. He wrote me a letter of recommendation. I went to prep school. He told me, you go up there, you do three things. One, stay out of trouble. Two, do good in school. Three, play hockey, do your best in hockey. So I did those three things. At the end of the year, I was the most improved player in hockey. I was the most improved student, and I did well in hockey. And I stayed out of trouble too, kinda. But <laughs> kinda. <laughs> Enough. Not the kind of trouble I get in back in Boston as a kid. Right, right. And he was friends with a former player, Fernie Flamin, who coached. He was a former Bruins player, legend. He coached at Northeastern. Fernie came to see me play one game uh, at Northwood School and ended up offering me a full scholarship to Northeastern. So it was through the judge, this coach, friend, mentor of mine, that I was able to go off to college, the first uh, child in my family to have that opportunity. Isn't that amazing? I mean, uh, pretty much a stranger. Just saw, he must have known something about hockey, right? I mean, he had to have been pretty oh, yeah, astute he knew in hockey, hockey to see something. Yeah. He knew hockey, but I, I think he knew people better. And when I say that, um, you know, I went to Northeastern a couple of years. I ended up getting drafted by the Montreal Canadiens after my second year in 78. I come to find out after my career is said and done from a former Montreal Canadiens player who is a Hall of Famer and a legend, Dickie Moore and Doug Harvey. There's two of them. Well, they were friends with Judge King. So Judge King, when I was at Northeastern, approached both of them and said, here's the deal. Do me a favor. Just have the Canadians draft Chris Nyland and he'll do the rest. This is what Judge said to these two Hall of Fame 
hockey players. So Dickie said, listen, here's the deal. We'll send a scout, go look at them, but we'll draft them. We'll just pick them with our last pick. In the, don't worry, we'll draft them. Sure enough, 1978 comes around, I get drafted by the Canadiens. Now, I'm thinking, well, someone scouted me. Whoop-de-doo. I found out, and me, I, I was very naive. Like, I didn't know the difference between a first-round pick or a 17-round pick. It didn't make a difference. And I find out after the judge passed away, after my career is over, and Dickie Moore comes to the funeral, um, we went out after the funeral uh, for lunch, and we sat down. He said, you know how you get drafted by the Canadians in the 17th round? I said, yeah, yeah, it was a late pick, but obviously it doesn't mean much now the way I turned that thing inside out. He said, well, the judge never wanted me to let you know this, but he's responsible for you getting drafted by the Canadians. He called me and asked to do him a favor. So that's how I get drafted. And for him to say to me, Chris, the judge said, just draft him. He'll do the rest. Like, man, I, I, you don't know how emotional I got when I first heard that. I was shaken. And I was in tears when I heard it. Because I, this man who was and turned out to be a great mentor of mine, and maybe at the time I didn't know it so much, but I always had the time for him. We went to lunch. We did a lot of things as he got older and his health was starting to fail. We got together quite a bit. And he never let it out of the bag, the bastard. But I absolutely loved the man. It's just beautiful. Loved him. Chris, tell me about your career in the NHL, what it means to be the enforcer, or what would you even call that position? How did you choose that role, and or did the role choose you? I didn't. I wanted to be Bobby Orr. Remember, I grew up in Boston. I wanted to be Bobby Orr. Now, I could play hockey. I came into my first uh, training camp with Montreal. They just won four Stanley Cups in a row, and I'm coming to training camp with all these future Hall of Famers. I get sent to the American Hockey League, which is a step down. And I remember being um, in an exhibition game. And all these Canadian kids play junior hockey, and you fight in junior hockey. I'm thinking, like, how difficult can it be if I get in a fight? <laughs> I've fought on the street all my life. And so what? I've seen the Bruins do it, uh, you know, my whole young life growing up. I'll be all right. I can handle myself. So my first exhibition game, there's this big defenseman out of Ontario, Davey Red Allison. And we had a tough coach, Bert Templeton. He loved tough players. They didn't know. I'm from college. There's no reputation of being tough out of college. So I end up hitting one of these defensemen. His name, Bam Bam Boulanger. So I run Bam Bam into the boards. He turns around, chops me. I push him. The refs get in, break it up. We get back to the bench. And Allison looks down the bench. She goes, hey, fucking college kid. Who the fuck do you think you are? You know, you ever been in a brawl before? You know what a brawl is? I said, hey, 
Fuck you. A brawl? You don't know what a brawl is. You ever been stabbed? You ever been hit over the head with a baseball bat? I don't think so. Brawl. The next shift, I go out in the ice, and I kick the shit out of Bam Bam Belanger. <laughs> he comes right after me, Belanger, right? And I give it to him. Now I get back to the bench. Redzy took his socks off and stuck them in his mouth. He didn't say one <laughs> word to me. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know whether to shit or go blind. And oh. <laughs> I, so I don't talk to him the rest of training camp. Don't say a word. Ignore him. I get a five-game tryout for $200 a game. I get a tryout. I didn't have a contract. $200 a game. 1979. I'm in Halifax. They play the first three games at home. I don't play. We go on the road. We play our first game in Maine, which was the Philadelphia Flyers, the Broad Street Bullies, their farm team. The first shift, I go out, a body check. I hit this guy, Cochran, big defense and tough kid, six, four, five, like 235, big kid on the ice. Long arms down with knees. And anyway, I run him. He gives me a shot. Boom, we drop the gloves. I cut him open with a, a, a right. I come across, I cut him bad. Boom, we get kicked out of the game. The next day, the coach called me down the room. He said, hey, Knuckles, it's the coach. I said, hey, what's up? He goes, uh, do you have an agent? I said, no, I don't have an agent. I was a fucking 17th round pick. Why would I have? No, who wants to represent me? They ain't making no money with me. <laughs> anyway, he said, you better get one. He said, Montreal wants to sign your contract. That's how it happened. That one fight, I signed that contract a week later. And then everybody in the league the American League, all the tough guys, they wanted to fight me because I beat Glenn Cochran. He was one of the heavyweights in the league. So that's how it began. That's how I became a fighter. But I became more than a fighter. When I was down there, I played 49 games. I had 15 goals in Tennessee. I had 25 points in 49 games. So I had a point every two games. And Christ, I was fighting every night. Crazy. To go back, you said, I've been in a brawl. We all... Growing up, kids, you get in skirmishes and fights and stuff. I know if we got in a fight where I grew up, you'd get kicked out of school. What were you fighting for as a kid? And how early did you start just scrapping in the streets? Wow, geez, you know, hanging around the street corner, growing up in the city, everybody's trying to get over on you. Everybody's trying to do their thing. Everybody's trying to be the big guy in the neighborhood. There was a lot of that just stupid stuff that kids do growing up. Our street corner, the kids I hung with, we're tougher than you guys. Or we'd be out in a bar somewhere, and it's the, you looked at me wrong, <laughs> see you later. Uh, fighting over girls, you know. Um, I ended up in a, a situation one night in Boston with a couple of friends who, uh, we ended up in a really bad fight. We're outnumbered. There were weapons involved. Uh, one of the kids... Uh, that we fought, got hurt really bad, crushed his skull, lost an eye. Um, there was some bad things. And, um, you know, a lot of it, quite frankly, was around alcohol, you know? Yeah. Honestly, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, hanging on the street corner with your friends, guys are doing drugs, guys are smoking weed, drinking, 
And honestly, hockey, the hockey rink, my hockey team, who I was always accountable to, came before a lot of that. It saved me in a lot of ways. I can see that. You know, hockey's a notoriously tough guy sport. As a guy who once earned 42 penalty minutes, <laughs> which for the listeners who don't know, there's only 60 minutes in a, in a damn game. <laughs> uh, so as that guy, what is that life like? Not only on the, on the ice, but, you know, everywhere you fucking go, man. You know, restaurants. Are people challenging you? You know, what is that life like? No, uh, you know, I'll be honest, for the most part, those guys who do that job, especially in the city you're playing, people love you. They hate you in okay. the other cities. Yeah. It's like, you know, Bill right. Lambert. Everywhere he went, they hated right. him, right? But they loved him in Detroit. You're treated with a lot of reverence in your own hometown. You get the odd asshole who, you're, if you're out of buy drinking, he might say something, but it's like, forget about it. Hey, listen, I love doing that job. I always loved My father was a Green Beret. In Green Beret, the motto is uh, free those that are oppressed. My father always taught me to stick up for weaker kids or kids that got picked on. He always told me, I ever get a call from that school and you're picking on someone, I'll kick your ass. You'll have a problem. If anything, they'd call me and say, you beat some kid up because he was picking on someone. Well, I'll back you. I don't have a problem with it. So I always stuck up for my, my friends, my teammates. So the job fit me really well. And I thrived on it. Eight seconds remaining. The battle in the corner. It's center. Eisenhower couldn't get a shot. It's deflected down the ice. That's the it. The Canadians will win the Stanley Cup. Well, Montreal disposing first of Boston. And then the Canadians moving into the second round against Hartford. And now disposing of Calgary in five games. And Patrick Law with a brilliant so you won the cup in uh, 1986 um, with Montreal. Is everything like it looks like on TV? Do you think the legend of the Stanley Cup's even greater, you know, now than was back then? Or oh yeah, it's incredible. Like when they say it's the hottest trophy to win, it is. Like man, and listen, I get basketball, and it's physical, but it's a different level of hockey. Speed of the game. The guys, the macho part of it where, man, if you're hurt, there's no saying, coach, I, listen, I can't play. <laughs> it doesn't happen. I, I respect all athletes that way for what they go through. But when you look at what you have to go through to win that thing, man, I know at the end, I started the playoffs. I was probably 202. That's what I played at. I was 192 pounds at the end. I was all sucked up. I tore ligaments in my ankle. In the game before we won it, so I missed the final game. I had a black eye. I, I was a mess at the end, but it felt good. <laughs> I bet it did. Yeah, it did. 
What's the culture of drinking and partying like in the NHL, especially when you're, you know, living and playing in Canada? Well, here's the deal. Back when I played, it was a little different, right? It was big culture. Every day we finished practice, we went across the street to a little tavern and we'd have lunch. Now, lunch, lunch, <laughs> lunch, <laughs> and have a few beers. You know, here's how it was. Right. right. There were the older guys who've been around for a while would have a couple go home to their families. The guys in the middle there stay around a little longer. The young guys, we have one guy in the team that didn't drink, but he came every day and he was a born again Christian. His name was Ryan Walter, and a sweetheart of a man. And he would come every day, sit there with the boys, big smile, That's great. have a tomato juice. Good on him. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was unbelievable. Good on him, being with the team, hanging yeah, out with exactly. the team. But the culture was big, and I grew up in that culture too. You know, you work hard, play hard. Work hard, you deserve a cold one. The neighborhood like that, my household like that, and – Certainly in hockey. And hockey was big. You know, after game, cold beer, do your thing. And it was huge in the NHL back then. We played hard. We potty hard. I can hard. only imagine. A beer on the plane all the time. You know, driving home from the airport after getting off the plane. And I'm not proud of it today. I did it. Thank God I never killed anybody or hurt anybody. I didn't. And um, I never got a drunk driving, but I should have. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. 
Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Chris Nyland, also known as Knuckles, had an incredible 15-year NHL career. He spent 10 seasons as a Montreal Canadian, then three as a New York Ranger. His career ended in the city where he first picked up a stick and a pair of skates as a Boston Bruin for two seasons. 668 games, 110 goals, most penalty minutes by any American-born player, a record that still stands today. The game gave him so much, but like many pro athletes before and after him, it took its toll physically. That's when the pain began to rain. So after you're done playing, how hard was it to adjust? I know you you coached and did some things, but just as a pro, when you hung it up, what, what was that like? Yeah, it was difficult. You know, my identity of being a professional hockey player and doing the job I did, like I say, you can save all the money you want. You can do well financially, but you think you prepare, but you'll never prepare emotionally for what you're about to, what's about to happen to you. Mentally, emotionally, you just won't. And I didn't. Uh, I thought I had it all going on. I ha- had it all in control. Uh, that first year out of the game, you know, I had a hard time watching it because I, I was like, you know, I should still be there. I, you know, I was lying to myself. How old were you? I was 34 when I retired. Yeah, geez. I was 32. So, yeah, right there the same. Just young men, and you think you're ready for whatever, and much the same. I was complete. My identity was basketball. I had no idea who I was. So, please, please continue. Well, I struggled with that. You know, I, I was married, uh, had um, three children, and, you know, I got back to Boston. I did some work. Uh, uh, the first year I didn't work right away, and I started to get into a job at John Hancock in Boston in community relations and Olympic projects. They had an Olympic sponsorship. I had a big office in that high rise in Boston, the Hancock Tower, 52nd floor. Got this big office. I'm looking out, great view, nothing to do. It, it, I'm like, <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, I, we did do some things, but you know what? It was so freaking boring. So I had a friend in there who, who said, let's, 
you know, why don't we get in the insurance business? You know, we can get a, a payroll deduction with the city of Boston through the mayor. I'm a friend with the mayor. We'll get that. We'll enlist cops, firemen, boom. It'll be like an annuity. We'll be getting. So I'm there. Good idea. You know, so we went and took the personality test to be, um, to do sell insurance. So John and I both took it. They hugged him, loved him. And the guy told me, this ain't for you. I'm there. <laughs> Who are you to tell me? He said, this ain't for you. I did it for like a month. I'm like, fucking see you later. We'll never find something that will fulfill us as athletes like our careers. We just never will. And I tried to find it somewhere else. I tried to find it outside my marriage. I tried to find it with alcohol. I tried to fill that hole. And eventually, I tried to fill that hole with drugs. And man, it did not. It filled the hole, but the f hole kept getting empty and deeper and deeper and deeper. Yeah, I hear so much of what you're saying and feel it. You know, I think one of the things Steve Nash and I were talking about this, um, this was shortly after he retired, um, because I'd been retired for a while now. And he said, you know, the one thing I knew, I knew that I was going to miss being around the guys. I knew that, you know, the adjustment was going to be hard. He said, I didn't realize that, you know, since we we're eight or 10, you know, we've been playing this game where we're out there and we're running into one another and we're taking out some aggression and some frustration every single day, not only in games, but in the practices. You know, you miss going down. If you had a bad night at home, you go down and take out some aggression, running into guys, sweating, and take just kind of getting it out of yourself. And when you don't have that release anymore, well, you're going to try to fill it some way. And I think you did. I did as well. When, you know, we both share a history uh, and connection with opioids. When was the moment you realized you were hooked? Well, it was certainly in retirement. Here's the deal. I'll go back. I broke my leg when I was in the first grade. I was five years old. And it was a compound fracture. I did it skiing. And I had to stay over in the hospital overnight. And I remember because they couldn't set my leg that night. I had to wait for the doctor to come in the morning. They put me on morphine as a five-year-old. And I remember being in that room. And I remember how it felt. Now, okay, fast forward, high school, major surgery on my knee. I had all my cartilage removed. And I was on Demerol at the same hospital. And man, I'm like, I like that. I couldn't wait. I was asking for the next shot. And sure enough, then in college, I ended up in a fight in the street. I almost got my finger bit off. I had an infection. I ended up in the hospital for like 10 days, 12 days, and I was on opioids again. And it's weird. I got out. I took the pills, cup Percocet for a while, and I got rid of them. I, boom, I was... Back playing hockey, everything was great. During my career, I never took painkillers during my career until I broke my arm when I played in New York. I broke my uh, all in the bone. I snapped it in half, and I had to fly back to New York from Montreal when I broke it, and they gave me Percocet. And I remember I took it. I stayed up all night because my arm was really killing me, and I took it, and I got on the plane, and I... As soon as I got off the plane, I got in the car to go to the hospital, and I threw up. They didn't sit with me. I'm like, oh. Right. Yeah. And then in retirement, surgery after surgery, 
you know, I've had over 33 surgeries on my body. Uh, my knee, I just had my knee replaced a couple years ago, which is awesome. But anyway, I'll get into all that. But I got going on the opiates, and they agreed with me. I was First it was Percocet, then it was the Wonder Drug Oxycontin, 80 milligram tablets. Went from taking them to taking the coating off to snorting them, you know, snorting 10, 1080s a day like crazy. And then, um, you know, I, I had doctors everywhere, doctor in Montreal, doctor in Boston, two doctors in Montreal, doctor in Ontario. I, I get on a plane and fly to Toronto just to get pills like crazy and then fly right back. So like right around 2099, I kind of knew, I, I mean, what am I doing here? I, I try to stop, I couldn't, I mean, I would get sick. You know the pain you go through. And um, it was just crazy. And I ended up eventually um, getting some help uh, through the league and going to treatment back in 2000. Um, that was the first time. I had Chris Heron on, and I know you're familiar yeah. with Chris. He was younger than I was, but had a terrible uh, addiction problem and derailed his career. But all three of us say the same thing, and it's this thing really came to a head in 99 and 2000. And that's when OxyContin really started booming right go figure and so it's not a coincidence i you said it agreed with me it agreed with me as well and chris said the same thing i'm just one of those unfortunate people that for whatever reason that you know really satisfies me for a minute yeah okay so when did it switch for you from pills to heroin and you know how did that happen well after uh, i think they caught on to what the sackler family was doing the bastards there you go um yes sir you know they they started to crack down you know and all these doctors the pill factories you know down in florida all around and um then they switched over where you couldn't peel the coating off them anymore and snort them they made them snort proof and um then it was really difficult to get them so i said i got to try and kick this stuff on my own this is the second. I went to treatment in 2000. I got out, was good for a while, did my meetings and all. And I, you know, I faked it. I took it literal. Fake it till you make it. I kept faking it. I never made it. I started drinking again, went back. And right around 08, you know, I was still on the pills, doing the thing. And I said, I got to kick this. So I said, I can go to meetings, but I got to, you know, get off the pills. And I, I got to sweat it out, tough it out. And I remember being on the couch, like, just suffering and suffering. I would try and drink my way through it. And um, about the third day, I just couldn't take it anymore, you know. And I got on the phone, made a phone call. And I ended up calling a drug dealer who I knew. And he ended up getting me some heroin. And um, I'm that big deal, you know. Heroin, I'll, I'll snort it. I'm not going to shoot it. It's... Uh, it's the same stuff, basically. But heroin, yeah, it's like, Ooh. it is. And yeah, right. It's the same thing. And yeah, we don't know how much is in certain doses. I get all that, but that's... Heroin in pill form. Heroin yeah, in pill that's form. It. That's what and it is. I end up snorting it. And I said, I'll never shoot it. And within a week, I had a needle in my arm. Wow. Wow. And it was sickening. Like, And I went like that for close to a year just about about eight months 
and man, I was a mess. And I ended up uh, overdosing a few times, uh, just oh, craziness. Yes, I'm sorry, buddy. Yeah, and I'm the sorry, last buddy. time, I, I remember I woke up in the hotel, I was in the bathroom, I woke up, I don't know, I think I injected the heroin probably around, around 12 o'clock at night. And I woke up, it was like four in the morning, I was sitting there on the toilet, the needle in my arm, just bleeding. I got up to walk away in a panic. I fell forward. My legs went numb on me. I got up I, in a panic. I hit my head on the wall and knocked myself out, and I laid there. And that, Rex, is when I woke up. I was like a little baby, crying like a baby. I knew who to call. I just, I wasn't calling them. And that morning, I ended up... Uh, picking up the phone and calling Dan Cronin, the guy who helped me the first time. And I said, Dan, um, I, I need your help. It was, the, it was the most difficult thing I ever had to do, but I did it. And I, I said, I really need your help. He said, who is this? I said, it's Knuckles. He said, oh. He said, I've been waiting for your phone call. <laughs> you know, the oh, bastard. Yeah. Like, I yep, thought I'm sneaking around. No one knows. I'm still sober from back. Yeah. That'll be the day. Yeah, he had me on a plane the next day. God bless him. Addiction more often times than not stems from necessity. When the curtains closed on Knuckles Nyland's career, his body had been put through over 30 surgeries, more than anyone should endure. The mind is willing, but the body can no longer go. I unfortunately can relate. We as athletes have been trained to win at all cost and conditioned to trust that medical professionals know what our bodies need, especially when it comes to prescriptions while we heal. Oftentimes, this can be a recipe for disaster to the ultra-competitive. Sadly, it's not just the individual that suffers, but oftentimes the surrounding loved ones who often cannot cope or understand the internal struggle afoot. This is kind of a long-winded question, but, you know, I, I don't know the answer personally, but you got the drugs at the start from a doctor, same as me, and these things, you know, for the pain, they work, but, you know, Chris, we're professional athletes with access and connections to help and everything. Uh, can you imagine dealing with this thing as a, quote, regular person? And I ask because I read at one point, you know, you said, when people get sick with cancer, they get sympathy, but when people are alcoholics or drug addicts, Oh, it's self-inflicted. Just stop. And man, when I read that, it really hit me, you know, because I think that messaging, that is a message people need to hear. And maybe they don't really hear it when it's coming from their cousin or friend or parent or whoever else, you know. Um, I guess my real question isn't even a question, but more just can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, you know, it's, <laughs> a lot of people think it's a moral issue, you know. It's like, you know, wake up, son. I can smarten up. Just stop. They don't, those people don't have a clue. And it's like, listen, I remember when I first got my first dog and I was trying to walk the dog on a leash and it was way ahead of me and it wouldn't walk next to me. I'd be pulling on him there. Come on, Kona, come on, dude. walk next to me. I'm like, well, you fucking idiot. Like I was ignorant until I finally realized and I researched how to walk a dog on a leash. And if people are ignorant who 
maybe don't have that problem, those so-called normal people who do not struggle with addiction or alcoholism, maybe they've never been in contact with someone who has struggled with addiction, so they look at it like, hey, just stop. And it is so difficult when you're in that boat to do, and you know. Um, when you're physically addicted, that mental obsession that comes along with that propensity to keep doing the same thing over and over, the insanity of it, and your body needs that. You're so physically addicted, and I don't think people really understand that. You look at yeah. a heroin addict, and when I look back at myself and see myself in pictures when I was messed up, I mean, how couldn't you realize it? How couldn't you just, well, y- you realize it. I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I don't fucking like you. I don't. And I, I fell so far, and, you know, that's life. Uh, it, you know, I don't point my finger and blame it on anybody. I don't blame it on mommy and daddy. You know, I don't blame it on hockey and my fighting and all that stuff. Listen, I was physically addicted. I took the pills. If I am alcoholism, if that came through my genes, okay, if it's in the family gene, it's in the family gene. I still say, knowing me, the way I was as a my personality, coupled with uh, the addiction, man, it was easy for me to get where I got. Easy. A recipe for disaster in many ways and for success. You were wired to succeed. And, you know, a lot of times our greatest strengths can be our greatest weaknesses. And as athletes, it's just a... It's a hard role. I know the NHLPA helped out. Uh, what was your process of getting clean or getting sober? Well, I went to treatment. I went out to Oregon for three months. Uh, ended up living there for a while. I met my girlfriend, Jamie, uh, out there. She's from Hawaii. She's a sober woman. We relapsed together. You know, all the things they tell yeah, you not yeah, to do. All the th- yeah, of course. Well, she finally cut and ran, went back to Hawaii. See you later. Left me. I still struggled, and um, she ended up uh, putting me in touch with a addictionologist, a guy from Hawaii, and I flew to Hawaii. I met with him. He got me on Suboxone for the short term to get through the withdrawals, and I started going to meetings again every day when I was in Hawaii. I got back on the horse, did my thing. I stayed there for about two months, went back to Boston. Jamie stayed in Hawaii uh, for another three months. She ended up moving back this way once I was cleaned up and had everything under control. And we started our life new again in Montreal back in 2011. And we've survived. We've been together 11 years now. And, And we're both sober and life has never been better. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. 
Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Life out of the spotlight comes with an endless array of challenges. Chris accepts responsibility for his actions, which oftentimes is not the case amongst those who become drug dependent. To his credit, he pulled himself up from the abyss and found a zest for love and life again. Ironically, it wasn't until he was sober that Knuckles had a run in with the law, doing what is and always has been ingrained in him, standing up for a friend in peril. You know, this shows charges, called charges, as you know. And in your case, though, thankfully, outside of the time you spent in the penalty box for fighting, you didn't have many charges with the law, except one. Yeah. Can we talk about the bathing suit incident? Yeah, sure. (laughs) So so you steal a bathing suit, and I read where the cops come... And you're kicking the security guard's ass. Was that real? Tell oh, yeah, me the yeah. whole Listen story to this. here. 
I was with a buddy of mine. I just did a promotion. I had a thousand dollars cash, fifteen hundred cash in my pocket. I just did the promotion. We went to the mall to get something. I stopped there. I was going to the beach with my daughter. I didn't have a bathing suit because I just got back from. I was clean and sober at the time. Right. Okay. Okay. I wasn't messed up, and I was trying to bathing suit on. I had my shorts hanging on the thing, and I heard some guy giving Jimmy the business outside the door. So I opened the door and I look, and I had the bathing suit on. And guys, hey. He was trying to grab his bag. Jimmy bought something. He's accused him of stealing. So I walk out the thing. I said, what are you doing? Leave him alone. Jimmy walked away, kept walking away. The guy's there, come back here, try to grab him. He pulled away, went out the door. So I follow him out the door. I have the bathing suit on, my shorts in my hand with the money. So, boom, the guy grabs Jimmy, rips the bag out of his hand. What he had in the bag was paid for. So meanwhile, this guy is six foot three, yep, security yep, yep. guy, and they were from um, Cape Verde, I think. Anyway, we get out the door. I said, hey, get, leave him alone. Leave him alone. They go, fuck you, mind your business. I mean, mind my business. So he pushed me. I come back. I said, don't fucking push oh, me. Shit. Come back. <laughs> I hit him with a fucking shot, broke his nose, put him right down. Then his partner came out. And hit me over the head with the walkie-talkie. And I turned around and hit him with a shot. Knocked him on his ass. And then I grabbed Jimmy. I said, let's go. So, boom. We uh, are going to run to the car. And before we know it, we get run up on by both those guys and another guy. So I square up. Here I am squaring up with him. And I have flip-flops on. I'm fighting barefoot. And a bathing suit. Yeah. <laughs> so I square up and I got to stay on my feet. I don't want to go down. All of a sudden, boom, I get jumped on from behind. And the guy who jumped me from behind was one of their friends. I don't know who he was. And I just fell forward with him because I wanted to get him off me. I fell forward and flipped him. And I went down on my knees. I, I don't know, that fat oh, bastard. Shit. I don't know how much he weighed. But he went down right on his face, right? And ripped the skin right down his face. So, Please. boom. Then they start laying the boots to me. And I'm trying to get back to my feet. And all of a sudden, I hear the sirens. The cops come. And, you know, anyway, I get up. And there's the cops. He's handing out fucking paper towels. The three and the one, he's got a fucking on his nose. The other one on his lip, and the other one's fucking face is all fucked up. And I'm sitting in the back of the cruiser, handcuffed, like, want to get out and beat them again. Anyway, they accused me of stealing the bathing suit. Okay. I told the cop the story, and the cop said, well, there's a security guy at the store, blah, blah. Anyway, I go to court, and they end up wanting to press charges against me now. Well, I get a lawyer. We find out two of them are here illegally. Oh, so shit. we file felony charges, saw and battery dangerous weapon, and then they dropped the whole thing. Uh, as of far course, as the, of course they did. They wanted to sue me. And uh, as far as the other thing, stealing the bathing suit, the case got dropped out of court. I had to pay a court cost of 100 bucks because I wasted their time. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> what a great story. Holy nuts. shit. It was That's nuts. amazing. 
The Bureau may have an even bigger problem trying to explain its 25-year relationship with the notorious boss of the Irish mob in Boston, James Whitey Bulger, whom the FBI recruited as a secret informant to get information about Bulger's arch-rivals in the Italian Mafia. In exchange for that information, the FBI, in effect, gave Bulger carte blanche, which allowed him to get away with robbery, drug dealing, extortion, and according to a federal indictment, the murders of at least 19 people. What's more, one FBI agent has been charged with tipping off Bulger six years ago that he was about to be arrested, and that let him get away. You spoke recently in the press about how you had a relationship with reputed gangster Whitey Bulger in the early part of your career. Looking back, how the hell did that connection change you as a person? And how did it come about? It didn't change me at all as a person. Uh, listen, I've, the one thing I've always done, and I know I got a little lost when I was on the drugs and alcohol, right? But I've always stayed true to myself my family and my friends. Now, if I had some issues and I've screwed up here and there, fine. And I have. But I've always really tried to stay true to myself. As far as Mr. Bulger goes, I married his stepdaughter. Okay? And wow. Yeah, yeah. So we became... Listen, I knew he, of him. I knew, you know, he spent time in Alcatraz. I knew he was a bank robber. I knew... He did the not all that stuff. But yeah, like people say, oh, how could you like a guy like that? Oh, listen, until you're in them fucking shoes, you want to judge me? You know, I didn't hang around with him per se. It's not like I was right, a gangster. You just knew him. He was, it yeah. was my wife's mother. It was her boyfriend. And he was very good to me over the years. He was very bad to some other people. He, I remember the first time he, I went to pick Karen up. You know, no, she told me, listen, be careful what you say around him. He's blah, blah, I'm there, all right, you know, big, big fucking deal. Was he going to shoot me? So, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm good taking you on a fucking date. He going to kill me before the first right. date or what? <laughs> so going to whack me? <laughs> yeah, so I, I go in to pick her up and find, hey, how you doing? And, you know, good, hey, how are you, Chris? So we're walking out the door and taking Karen down the car, open the door, and then he peeks his head out the door. He says, hey, Chris, come here. I want to talk to you for a second. I'm like, okay. So Karen's like scared to death. So I go back in, and we sit down on the couch, and he had a pistol. He had a gun. And he goes, hey, listen, here's the deal. I know Karen loves you. You love her, whatever. I'm just going to lay it out for you. Don't ever lay a hand on her treat her like a lady, open the door, blah, blah, blah. You know, typical father talk. And um, if she ever wants to break up with you, just let her go. Don't fucking chase her around and try and hang on. So I'm there, okay. And I said, you know, I got you. And I said, honestly, you didn't have to pull a gun out to tell me. I could have just told me. <laughs> he said, well, that's the way I do business. <laughs> and I'm like, I, and I, honestly, I think he respected it. Because I didn't sit, I wasn't like shit in my pants. You know, I just, okay. Right. Was Whitey Bulger a hockey fan? Oh, he became one. Yeah, big time. But I went out the door, get in the car with Karen, and we're ready to leave. And he goes, hey, he opens the door again. He said, hey, Chris, come here. I come in, he peeled off like $1,000 bill. Here. 
Enjoy the evening. It was awesome. And I was a college was kid. I didn't have a pot to piss yeah, in shit. or a window to throw it out, right? Uh, I remember I got in a problem at the Boston Garden. Uh, I had hit one of their better players, Rick Middleton. I knocked a couple teeth out. And he was home watching on TV with someone else. And they're going, fucking Nyland's going to have a hard time. He'll never get out of the Boston Garden alive. They're everybody. So all my family was there anyway. And all the, the security guys are walking me out. And I'm there, hey, I don't fucking need you guys to protect me. I'm walking out of this bill. I don't need to be, well, we have to do it while you're on our property, blah, blah, blah. I said, honestly, I don't need you fucking guys. I'll take care of myself. And so I walk down. We get to the door, and I go out, and my family's there, and my friends, and ain't nobody going to fuck with me with them there. And the bus, team bus is there. All of a sudden, I hear from over behind the bus down the sidewalk, hey, Nyland, we're going to fucking kill you. Blah, blah, blah. And I look down, and all of a sudden, two guys in baseball hat, crack, down he went. <laughs> they laid the fucking boots to him. Well, it was, it was Whitey and Kevin, his partner, and they kicked the living shit out of that kid. And I got on the bus, we left. Huh. Yeah, it was, but That's he amazing. used to come up, um, and he came up actually uh, during the playoffs, because no one really knew him up here, and yeah, he could right. sit in the crowd. It was pretty cool. I remember a story. He came up to game with my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law at the time, Teresa, God rest her soul, um, was a gorgeous woman. And, you know, she came up to game with him, and they I gave him tickets in the red. And I'm at Costco about a year ago, and this guy comes up to me, and he tells me this story that I'm going to tell you. He wanted to thank me. He'd never seen me since. He wasn't a wealthy guy. Didn't have a lot of money. They happened to get tickets in the red seats that night, and he was sitting next to my father-in-law with his son. And I remember, like it was yesterday, Whitey came to me and he said, listen, after the game, he said, I got to tell you, there was a little kid sitting next to me with his dad. They didn't look like they didn't have much money. You know, the clothes were tatted, blah, blah, blah. And he said, um, I asked the kid, I said, who's your favorite player? He said, Knuckles, Knuckles, Nile, my favorite player, sir, blah, blah, blah. So between periods, he asked the father, he said, hey, can I take your son down to the, the pro shop, you know, the souvenir shop? He said, sure, go ahead, you know, because he told the guy, it was Chris's father, blah, blah, blah. So he takes the kid down. The kid come back, he had two fucking bags. He had hats, he had a nylon jersey, he had fucking Canadians, every fucking thing. And he comes back with these two bags full of things. So this guy doesn't know who my father-in-law is. So a year ago, I see him at Costco. He comes up, he says, hey, Chris Nyland. I'm like, hey, how are you, buddy? How's it going? He's just a big fan of yours. But I got to tell you, back when you were playing, I went to a game and I sat next to your father-in-law. And he told me the story. The guy was in fucking tears. Oh, he was in tears. How beautiful. It, it was an unbelievable story. And I said, you know what? Right? I, I know what you're telling me. Because yeah. after the game, he told me what he did. And I never forgot that. It was so cool. God, that's just beautiful. Amazing. People are endlessly complicated and fascinating. Yeah, right. All right, so you got yourself together. You got sober, clean. And you've decided to do what with this new lease on life, Knuckles? Well, I had an opportunity back here in Montreal in the radio to move back. Uh, a friend, again, when you're in our boat, 
not everybody got their hand out and say, hey, I'll help you. And I, believe me, I totally understand that. I don't have a problem with it. I get it. Um, but Mitch Melnick, a guy who was here when I played, he did the radio for years. We always had this relationship. And I had done a few things with him when I was messed up. You know, I call in, do a show, watch a game, you know, do, analyze the game, blah, blah, blah. And he said, listen, you'd be good at this. What do you think? He said, would you move back? Yeah, I said, yeah, I'll move back. So I flew in, uh, got an interview with uh, his boss, Wayne Buse, sat down with both of them. I left, and Wayne said to Mitch, he ain't fucking moving back. He's American. He's living in the state. Why do you want to move to Canada? Mitch said, we'll see. Look, I moved back to, uh, like a month and a half later. I was there. All of a sudden, I show up. Now Wayne's like, oh, shit, he's back. And he followed through. And I, I was here probably about eight months. I moved back here. I had a borrowed Cadillac from my friend Brian McLaughlin. His mother passed away. Car was sitting in the garage. He said, I'll let you use that till you get back on your feet. My dentist up here, not one of these teeth in my head of mine. Yeah, uh, they're isn't all that amazing? We just, we stopped <laughs> taking care of ourselves, right? <laughs> oh, Completely. Yeah, I, I went was through the hockey, same though. stuff. Part of yeah, that was yeah, hockey. Yeah. <laughs> I had a good start. That. <laughs> but uh, my dentist let me live in his condo, um, and I chipped away. I moved back here with Jamie. I have five hundred dollars in my pocket. Borrow vehicle. We each had a bag of clothes. We start our life all over. Um, we rented for a while. The radio show I've been doing for uh, nine years now. Uh, we just bought a house three years ago. I we chipped away, chipped away. I go do my thing. I go to my meetings. Uh, I do the Zoom stuff now. I love it uh, since COVID. We both had COVID uh, and survived it. Um, good. Thank God. No, no real uh, no. scares. It's like the flu. The good. Good. Okay. I had the, wor- I had the flu worse, you know, than I had COVID. And, yeah, life is awesome. I, honestly, yeah, I have three children back in Boston. I got uh, four grandchildren. My parents are still alive. My mom's not well. You know, my dad was so proud of my career and all that. But I, my dad, I know today, and I've helped a few people along the way, like I'm sure you have. And he has seen that. And he's more proud of me what I've done in my, my life now than ever. And I can see it in his eyes when I talk to him every time. Every time. And God love him, what he's doing. He's taking care of my mom. She's got dementia. It's a terrible thing. Oh, I'm sorry, buddy. But yeah, um, I'm really sorry. I'm glad I'm sober to be there for him today. You know, like a, instead of being that, you know, fucking blank, numb, dope walking around and being a sick man. I was a sick man. Well put. No I, longer. I, my folks are the same, and I think they're prouder of me now than they ever were. Right? That's awesome. You talked about it's not how many times you fall down, but how many times you get up. What? Or who or why is the reason that you keep getting up, Knuckles? I, I have a passion for life. I want to live life. Like, you know, I survived in my addiction. I was just surviving. I wasn't living my life. And boy, I, you know, I'm not, I, I don't live my life in fear. Like, I'm scared to do this or scared to do that. You know, people are scared to change. And I always hear that. Like, I fucking deal with it. Whatever's coming, I'm dealing with. Like, I don't care what it is. Like, as long as I don't do something wrong I, to hurt another person, to steal from someone or, or hurt somebody in a way, like, 
the cops ain't coming to get me. You know, I, I might be late in my fucking taxes. Well, you, <laughs> yeah. you got to deal with it. You got to fucking deal with same it. Same as me. Yeah. Same as me. Like, but as long as I don't hurt anybody, um, I remain teachable. Um, I enjoy my life. That's all I want. Enjoy my family. You know, life is good again. What's next for you? Where can people find you? And what do you want to leave people with now that they've gotten to know you? Well, I guess what's next for me, um, I'm just going to do the radio show here as long uh, as they'll have me. And then hopefully one day I can get down to Boston and spend some time with family, more time with family. And hopefully one day Jamie and I will be able to maybe spend four months of the year in Hawaii with her family because she's from Kona. And then, yeah, just, you know, at some point here in the next few years, I'm too young to retire. But, you know, just do this for as long as I can and, and enjoy the rest of my life. And as far as, I guess, leaving people with something, I think honesty, I, I, listen, I've always taken my lumps. One, one thing my father did want, not want me to do is lie. And there's one thing he can never call me as a fucking liar. The honesty, you know, people who are struggling maybe with addiction, it's hard to get honest, right? It's like, yeah, it's hard to say, oh, okay, I got a problem, I need help. But man, if you're honest with yourself and you really look deep down inside and realize that and you become open-minded and then you become willing, you can change your life. Um, you can change it around. There's no question about it. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And you can get your life back. I know it helped me, yeah. for sure. It's like uh, my father always says, you know, be coachable. Yeah. Be coachable, right? Chris Knuckles, I want to thank you for being so open and honest with me today. There's so many of us around the world who revere you, and I can see why. If there's anything I can ever do for you, my door's always open, my friend. Thanks so much for, for coming on Charges today. Hey, Rex, that was awesome. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, following uh, basketball for a few years, being a big Celts fan when I found out I was coming on, and I always follow you on Twitter. You became all oh, the – I just love the stuff you put out there. I know you had a good career. You had some issues uh, like myself. Uh, just awesome. Uh, a lot of respect for you that you changed your life around, and you're living life again like Knuckles is. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. And I, since you're a Celtics fan, my people are at the Celtics. So one of these days, let's meet up in Boston and go catch a Celtics I'd game together. To. I'd love to. All right, buddy. Thank you. All the best. Thanks for having me. Charges. Sharing our run-ins with the off. Charges. Athletes, entertainers, and ballers. Charges. Every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges. We came a long way from living lawless. Charges. Sharing our run-ins with the off. Charges. Athletes, entertainers, and ballers. Charges. Every celebrity ain't flawless. Charges. We came a long way from living lawless. Charges. Charges is created by Portal A and Control Media. It's produced by DB Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. 
Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.